How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm pleased to be joining conversation today with Doug Brinkley, the Catherine Sonoff. Brown Chair in Humanities and Professor of History at Rice University. He is a presidential historian for the New York Historical Society, among many other presidential historian roles that he's performed. And today we are discussing his book, The Wilderness Warrior, Theodore Roosevelt and the Crusade for America. Doug, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, David. I appreciate it. So what prompted your interest to write a book on Teddy Roosevelt's conservation and wilderness efforts and achievements? When I was a young boy, David, my mother and father were teachers, and uh, we were living in Georgia and then Ohio. And when you were, you have parents as teachers that love the outdoors, it became a family tradition. We would take our Pontiac station wagon and a um, 34-foot coachman trailer and hitch it up and drive all over America, and we would visit the national parks and historic sites. So by the time I went to college, I had visited the Great Smokies and the Everglades, uh, Big Bend National Park in Texas and the Olympics in Washington, you know, Isle Royal uh, and far-flung northern Michigan and Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, on and on. And uh, my sister always wanted to be, you know, at Disneyland or getting a, a, a beach tan on these trips. And I was just um, enamored by the parks and historic sites. In many ways, it's why I became a professional historian. And wherever I went, as a boy, I'd pick up the brochures at the parks, and one way or another, Franklin Roosevelt or Theodore Roosevelt had established that Parker monument. And so when I had my own kids, I have three, I decided to take them to the parks as part of a family tradition, but but to, if you'd like, monetize it, write about it. So we would visit Joshua Tree National Park in California, and I'd arrange with the archivist there to go through the papers how that park was founded, and I'd replicate that all over the country. So I started with TR. It's the first great wave of conservation. He was president from 1901 to 1909, and he was only biologist president. He earned a, a biology degree, when they called it natural studies back then, at Harvard. Uh, and as an undergraduate, um, TR wrote his first book called The Summer Birds of the Adirondacks. And it's important little book because he had a lifetime addiction to bird watching. It was his really his favorite pastime. And um, secondarily, uh, the Adirondacks meant a lot to him. He was born in New York City in 1858, but had asthma due to the factories and sm- what we call smog today. But when he'd go up to the Adirondacks, when he was at you know Lake George, for example, he felt like a million dollars. He felt tremendous. And so he started connecting public health 
to getting out and getting fresh air in the green zones or wilderness or the forest. And it became a, really the, the mainstay of his character of, of getting out and exploring the United States and, and other countries. So is this part of a trilogy that you're doing on environmental and conservation efforts by the presidents since Teddy Roosevelt? Yeah, I, once I wrote the Theodore Roosevelt one, and TR, for example, created today's U.S. Forest Service, which administers all of our vast national forests through our Department of Agriculture. Theodore Roosevelt, with executive order, really pounding his fist over saving a place called Pelican Island, Florida, near Vero Beach, because there were in Florida feather mafias, you know, let's call it circa 1901. People would slaughter the birds of Florida just for their ornamental feathers. So many species were vanishing or going extinct um, because women were wearing feathers for fashion in their bonnets. And TR thought you had to have federal rules for birds. It, Massachusetts couldn't have an aggressive Audubon Society of Bird Protection at Florida post Civil War, Confederate states rights, Florida allowed big groups to just gun down all the wild birds. So he pounded his fist against his lawyer's advice and declared this hunk of Florida a federal bird reservation. And he then did 51 of them. And those 51, one of them is in the Yukon Delta in Alaska is the size of West Virginia. But he did the 51 to um, save America's bird species. And that grew into what we have today, U.S. Fish and Wildlife. The American public, anybody listening here, owns over 550 national wildlife refuges. So our country, starting with TRs, made a heroic effort to protect our indigenous flora and fauna. And then after TR did all this stuff, I realized I needed to write the second book on what Franklin Roosevelt did. And he was like um, Theodore, a ardent conservationist. He planted trees as a scientific forester at his home in the Hudson River. Eleanor Roosevelt used to say, my husband is the Hudson River. The thing he knew most was every nook and cranny along that river. That river was his Walden Pond, if you like, FDR. He couldn't wait to get back there. Of course, he's buried there. And Roosevelt did many significant things, meaning FDR, including his civilian conservation corps during the Great Depression, paying unemployed men a, a, a dollar a day, but they'd have to wear a uniform and they have to get up at bugle call and they would have to go to far-flung parts of America. But the CCC boys, as they were called, planted nearly 3 billion trees between 1933 and 1945. And FDR is the progenitor. It's hard to get your head around a figure like this, but using land swaps and easement deals and outright buying of land, he created 800 state parks throughout the country. And then, of course, fought for unusual parks like Joshua Tree that I just mentioned. He saved the Everglades, the Smoky Mountains. Um, many of our iconic parks were FDR. And then there was a lull in it. There always is after you have an aggressive conservation president, particularly like the two Roosevelt's, where where nobody David equals them. There, you know, people will say who else was a good green president. Nobody's like either Roosevelt. They're in a league of their own, those two. But there was a third wave, and that's what my third book is about: Silent Spring Revolution. Uh, and in that, it was three presidents, John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, and Richard Nixon, all with great environmental records. But the catalyst for that movement was Rachel Carson and her 1962 
nonfiction book, Silent Spring. So you've done their trilogy now. And the first person who kind of began the effort of presidents to be environmentalists, if you could use that word, was Teddy Roosevelt. Is that right? He began, no presidents before him were not really that concerned about that subject. Is that fair? That's very fair. You had a naturalist president in Thomas Jefferson who loved botany and loved doing agricultural experimentation, uh, actually knew a great deal about the natural world. But, and, uh, you know, and you're buying the Louisiana Purchase, you know, you can make an effort that the, you know, the Lewis and Clark expedition was largely the result. They didn't find a shortcut to trade to China, but they identified a lot of the wildlife and uh, rivers like in the West. But so Jefferson kind of is an honorary member of this naturalist president club. Oddly, uh, Benjamin Harrison got very involved when we were expanding the West to make sure the federal government didn't give up land, didn't sell. The U.S. government today owns two-thirds of Nevada or three-fourths of Idaho. And Harrison was part of the federal government keeping vast Western reserves of forest lands. But TR's the beginning of bringing the science community, scientific forestry, soil management. If, If a species is being exterminated like the buffalo was, Theodore Roosevelt invented ways for restoration using New York Zoo, the Bronx Zoo, to help buffalo rebreed. And then TR personally brought them to Oklahoma, um, the Wichita Mountain there, to get the buffalo back on the plains. So if you're traveling the West in America and you see a buffalo herd, they're really coming out of Theodore Roosevelt's Bronx Zoo herd. He saw the buffalo or grizzly bear or alligator as symbols of American greatness. Theodore Roosevelt's the one who said, look, the British have Westminster Abbey, we have the Tetons. The French have the Louvre, you know, but we have the rock rib coast of Maine. On and on, he would give those examples that our heritage in the United States is directly connected in Roosevelt's mind to the frontier, to wilderness, and to the need to protect these unique and blessed natural features that our country has. So that's why he he launches it all. After Theodore Roosevelt, you can start judging and, and ranking presidents, giving them ratings on how they measure up to TR's high standard. Now, he grew up in New York City. So you might say, well, if you grow up in New York City, your outdoors venue is Central Park. So how did somebody who grew up near Central Park decide that he really was so interested in the outdoors Was it his father who had an interest in this as well, or just somebody else that influenced him? It's a great question, David, because Central Park was a little wilder than it was today. Uh, And and you could go down there with a BB gun and shoot birds. And that's what TR did. Now, this might seem odd because I just mentioned to you he was a kind of an Audubon guy. Uh, But he would shoot the birds, collect them, and then learn taxidermy from John James Audubon's last student, a guy named Bell. TR became perhaps one of the nation's, maybe the most efficient taxidermist for small birds. And um, he started his own museum in his house in New York by just collecting around Manhattan at first. This was being driven by the fact that his father was the, I would call him the leading progenitor uh, the the chief fundraiser and conceptualizer of the American Museum of Natural History in New York. The idea for our Natural History Museum uh, comes out of Theodore Roosevelt's father and a man named Albert Blackmore, who said, we're going to build a better museum in New York on natural history than the British have. 
We were competing with Great Britain in this regard. And TR was born in 1858. And in 1859, Charles Darwin wrote on the origins of species. Now, the Civil War is going on, you know, there are battles of bull runners, you know, and and Shiloh and, and Gettysburg and the rest. Not a lot of Americans were focused on Charles Darwin, but the Roosevelt family was. They wanted Army's Great Museum to be Darwinian based. And in fact, David, historians like myself read other people's leavings, letters, um, you know, are, are, are our primary source. And the most interesting ones of Theodore Roosevelt are him at six and seven years old, drawing storks, how storks evolve into man, how an ape can turn into a human. And on top of these little boyhood drawings, he'd write Darwin's theory of evolution. And so his whole life, Theodore Roosevelt, when he traveled, he brought with him Darwin's book. Uh, and, And that was a controversial book. And Roosevelt was very proud to be a Darwinian. In fact, I really think that's what he wanted to be in life. Uh, as ex-president, he would go uh, live in it for a year in Africa, um, collecting flora and fauna. And then he went famously into the Amazon. And he really wished he was Charles Darwin. And uh, that was his hero, an intellectual who could write, who traveled and discovered new species and, and, and documented new places, yet brought things back to New York and it's sometimes the Smithsonian, so they would be part of America's holdings. So I hate to be impolitic, but somebody who's such a great conservationist, how can he justify being a person who was shooting and killing animals all the time? And he was a big hunter. You've just said he liked to shoot birds. Why would he say, well, why don't we leave the animals alone? I get asked that question, and um, the answer to it is he was both a member of the lifetime member of the Audubon Society and a lifetime member of the National Rifle Association. Um, today, they would seem to be on separate pages. In TR, they were one one thing. In those days, we didn't have bird banning. We didn't have radar. You didn't have you know helicopters or computers to, to monitor species. And the only way we could identify them was to kill them. Now, I've gone to the drawers, David, at American Museum of Natural History and seen some of the birds TR killed. Like, I'll just give this as an example. If you're going to study bluebirds, are there one type of bluebird, one species, or are there five? And it's all about difference in variation. And the variations are color or, or beak. And Roosevelt wanted to have our scientific guidebook of what species existed scientifically exact. And it became big arguments after Darwin. What's a species and what is a subspecies? Uh, Roosevelt always sided on the favor of more species. For example, he thought North America had at one point seven different types of bear. Well, there aren't seven, but some of them are subspecies. Uh, but we, he, you know, he gets it down to four eventually. But then he wanted the guidebooks written, so we had a national documentation of this. In those days, you shot it to study it. Now, in addition, I think he had a bloodlust for hunting. It's also true the aristocratic hunters were some of our first great conservationists. Um, some of the wealthy people in New York uh, who went hunting on safaris and all were also the big ones that funded conservation. And what where Theodore Roosevelt has this um, turning moment, David, as he went to North Dakota of today, um, that it was called the Dakota Territories. And he hired, he had money, he hired the best guides because he wanted a buffalo head at his home in Sagamore Hill, New York. 
it took a week to find them. Now, there used to be 60 million buffalo on the Great Plains, and they got exterminated by the railroads, by the cavalry and the Indian Wars, by the telegraph companies. Buffalo would rub their backs against the poles, so the telegraphs wanted them exterminated. Railroads didn't want a buffalo herd at night in the middle of their train tracks. Uh, the U.S. Army killed buffalo because they were trying to take Native Americans' food substance away from them to create reservation systems. But Roosevelt paid and looked and couldn't find a buffalo. He finally found one. They shot it. He danced around it in a Native American dance. They cut the tongue of the buffalo out and ate it. That was considered the great delicacy, the hump in the tongue. And then he sent the head to St. Paul to be mounted. And today it's mounted at Sagamore Hill. But when he got that buffalo, he said, my God, there are going to be none left. And we've got to create a nonprofit group of wealthy Americans that bring the buffalo back to the Great Plains. So he founded the Boone and Crockett Club, Aristocratic Hunters. He created himself the American Bison Society. When he was president, he removed in the White House tiger and lion heads that were in the fixtures and replaced them with bison. He said, our White House should have Native American species, not an animal that doesn't roam our great shores. And he's the beginning of that kind of um, nonprofit attempt to bring back animals. And it's he's important because he helped bring back the elk, the bison. And then as president, he wrote a book called The Deer Family, differentiating by what types of deers, why a Virginia deer is different than a white-tailed deer here. Or, uh, uh, you know, it, and, and this became a lifetime obsession. Again, you need to think of him as a biologist, wildlife field biologist, very interested in, in documenting new types of species, particularly in the West, where we didn't have those books. Arizona didn't have the guidebook, the wildflowers of Arizona, or Utah didn't have, a, you know, the migratory birds of the Great Salt Lake. Roosevelt wanted books written about them. He wanted materials our country needed to know what its holdings were. And um, so, yes, there's a, it's a bit of a conundrum. Our great preservationist president was also our most notorious hunter. So to be a hunter or a fisherman, you have to be in reasonable shape to deal with the outdoors and so forth. But growing up, Teddy Roosevelt was a kind of thin, not very athletic person. How did he get himself in shape to be able to do all these kinds of uh, hunting expeditions? Great question. First thing to remember, I, I would tell you, is you know he couldn't see out of one eye. Uh, he got hit in a boxing accident, so he was really a one-eyed man. His other eye didn't see very well. He was a terrible shot. He couldn't shoot the side of a barn. He wouldn't like me saying that, but it's the truth. What he had that shocked anybody that went hunting with him was a bizarre stamina will. He would never give up. People would say, look, bad luck. He wouldn't stop till he had a catch. He would camp out, stay. To go home empty-handed would be to, in Donald Trump's terms, to be a loser. And he refused to do that. So his ability to stay and stalk was really quite remarkable. He was afraid of oceans. He would get seasick. He had no great love of the Atlantic and the Pacific. His favorite part of the country uh, was the the Great Plains because you could see miles in front of you. He was kind of like a cavalry guy on a horse. And, you know, he was hardy. But the big moment was when he was a boy, he got 
bullied and beat up at a train station in Maine, came home very depressed that he was a weakling with asthma. And his father said, you can whine about it or you can build your body up. And he hired for his son a weight trainer. And Theodore Roosevelt, by the time he he is in halfway through Harvard, if there's photos of him, he would take them without his shirt on. You could see him in this muscular physique. And so he kept working out with weights and and then long walks and hikes. He used to create an obstacle course that Robert F. Kennedy ended up adopting. You walk from A to B, you're outside and you say, no matter what, I'm gonna walk these five miles and not go sideways. I'm gonna go a straight line. You might encounter a fence. You might have to climb a wall. You might have to swim across a river, but he would create these games, which you are more like you would see in a army basic training camp. David, this will shock you because I know I know a lot of the same generals that you do in admirals. I've talked to them. They all, of course, love Theodore Roosevelt. All of them, I've asked them, and it's a lot. He used to, Theodore Roosevelt, say that nothing was better for you know an, an army soldier than being also a bird watcher. And now that might, sounds odd, but Roosevelt believed bird watching, you learn not to make a big noise when you walked, that you looked up all the time and your eyes were hyper alert for identification of a flicker. And if you could learn to identify bird song, you would train your hearing to hear what bird and have that ability, that oral ability. And many of the generals say yes, because it keeps you in a kind of constant state of, of alert. Now, Teddy Roosevelt, you said, got some of his love of the outdoors and for animals from his father. Was Teddy Roosevelt able to have any of his children love birds, the outdoors, hunting as much as Teddy Roosevelt did? Yeah, his son Kermit, particularly on the hunting side of it, uh, all of the Roosevelts are big conservationists. Today, great grandkids of Theodore Roosevelt, uh, Simon Roosevelt and Theodore Roosevelt V. And these are ardent conservationists, Some many Republicans who are go with Democrats on any preservation issue. And a little like the Rockefellers got that way, too, you know, uh, uh, John D. Rockefeller Jr. and Lawrence Rockefeller, they all became ardent conservationists, preservationists, saving historic sites. You fall into that camp yourself, David, with what you do in Washington, D.C. And, and elsewhere of, of caring about preserving America's heritage. But, you know, I write a lot on presidents, David, and I think Theodore Roosevelt had the best father. He was a really, really good man as a philanthropist. He didn't fight in the Civil War. His father hired a surrogate to represent the Union. Rich people would pay somebody to be their representative. That embarrassed the future president that his dad didn't fight. Right. But his father was a leader in all sorts of philanthropic causes. But more to the, And he took his young Theodore everywhere. Theodore Roosevelt got to go into visit down the Nile, you know, to Rome, through the Alps. I mean, they would travel and Theodore Roosevelt ended up learning four, and some will say five languages fluently. Fluent. Imagine a president of the United States with four or five languages that he's fluent at. And yet he was deeply pious, Theodore Roosevelt's father. No drinking, no smoking, no cursing, church. And TR gravitated to Uncle Robert Barnwell Roosevelt, who was a Dr. Doolittle-like figure, a New York and Cambridge eccentric Dr. Robb wrote the best books after the Civil War, meaning books in the 1870s. He wrote the best book on Lake Superior and a book called The Waterfowl of Florida. And Dr. Robb would have monkeys at the dinner table. 
you know, a raccoon running around the house, um, pure mayhem of species all around Uncle Rob. And then Uncle Rob wrote a risque novel called Petticoat Junction, which was deemed light porn in today's terms. And he got blackballed for writing this book. But uh, Uncle Rob became the head of the Democratic National Committee, had been our U.S. ambassador to the Netherlands. But the thing that T.R. couldn't believe is he always wanted to hang out with Uncle Rob because he cursed, he was funny, and animals everywhere. You went to his house, it would be like a mini zoo. And T.R.'s father disapproved of that. But so T.R.'s like half his father and half his Uncle Rob. T.R.'s father died when T.R. was relatively young. Yes. And then later, uh, T.R. had the most tragic thing that could happen to him. On the same day in the same house, his wife and his mother died within an hour or two of each other. That propelled him to want to escape from New York. He went to what's called the Badlands and spent some time there. What was the Badlands? Why did he go there? And how did that influence his love of the outdoors? When he was at Harvard, he did a, a trip to Carroll County, Iowa, which might sound Midwest, but it's the westernmost county of Iowa. He went there to go grouse hunting. He went with his brother and they traveled and he read Francis Parkman's great book, The Oregon Trail, always a favorite of Theodore Roosevelt. And one of my favorites, if anybody listening has not read Francis Parkman's journey uh, about on the Oregon Trail, it's still a classic. But anyway, TR made his way up to the Red River Valley up in Minnesota and did bird watching up there, found all these new species, and then came home back to college. Well, cut to um, when his mother, and as you vividly mentioned, a dark day, Valentine's Day, your, his mother died of Bright's disease on one floor of a house, while his wife, Alice, died giving childbirth. The baby lived, but he, he was going all night between floor to floor, and he had them both die on him. Those were his two loves. And he wrote in his diary, you know, the light has gone out of my life forever and put an X on the page of his diary. And he went into a deep funk and uh, he just moped through depression. And, and his sister came to him and said, theater, you got to get out of New York. You love the West. When you came back from that trip West, that's all you talk about. And he was a bit of a, a junkie for Western pulp Westerns, anything about the West, photos of things. He, you know, it was not unusual, but he was really at a Western vector. And uh, so he took the Northern Pacific Rail Line out of New York and it, that drops you off in Medora, North Dakota today because they hadn't finished the rail line. They were building it from, from Puget Sound to New York and was going to meet somewhere in Montana. So he just got off where the rail line at that point ended in the middle of, of really the Badlands of North Dakota. Uh, he describes the Badlands as, you know, grotesque rock fixtures, you know, comparable to Edgar Allan Poe's stories. Um, but it was there that T.R. found himself. Uh, he lived with the cowboys and the ranchers. He became a law enforcement-like guy, but he rode horses well. He pursued criminals that stole horses. He had two ranches, the Maltese Cross and the Elkhorn, meaning he had two brands for his cattle. And he fell in love with the Little Missouri River. I mentioned to you, David, I, I ask students sometimes, what's your Walden Pond, meaning Thoreau worshiped this one pond. What place do you love? And Theodore Roosevelt fell in love with the Badlands. 
Uh, for one thing, as an asthmatic, even now, there are no trees north of North Dakota. If you go to the Badlands and feel those wind carving the rocks, there are no forests north of there. So you're getting fresh Arctic air blowing through. And he just felt like uh, like incredibly healthy out there. And he then famously said, and North Dakota uses this as their state slogan today, I never would have been president without my time in North Dakota. Still, nobody's written about that region as well as TR. It allowed him to be not the Harvard Manhattan guy. It allowed him to be a cowboy Western figure. And he markets himself. He loved being called a damn cowboy. He he started over wearing guns like a cowboy gunslinger. And he'd wear hats like a cowboy. And he kind of came back east saying, you, you're all soft here in New York. I'm, I've worked with the real hardy outdoor workers of America. And it allowed his image to form of himself. So interestingly, uh, a Teddy Roosevelt presidential library is being built and it's being built in the Badlands. So although we associated him with New York, uh, the presidential library will actually be built, assuming it is built, uh, will be in North Dakota. So let me ask you uh, a couple other questions, the remaining time we have about this uh, love of the outdoors that Teddy Roosevelt had. When he became president of the United States, um, that's an all-consuming job. How much time did he really have for the outdoors when he was trying to do so many other things? Did his ardor and time available for the outdoors diminish uh, appreciably then or not? Never diminished. Uh, he constantly was in motion, locomotion everywhere. He would bring a gun and a bag and off he'd go. He went as president camping in Yellowstone with the great Catskills naturalist, John Burroughs, who Burroughs was writing best-selling books about really backyard nature in New York, but was a, I mean, a phenomenon Burroughs. He'd write them regularly. He'd call him Um John, Uncle John. Uh, and his only great friends really became naturalists and bird watchers. He went out to Yosemite and camped with John Muir in Yosemite in the snow as president. And you want to see presidential power. Yosemite had been protected, so he was camping in a national park. But Muir, who was writing all these progressive things about you know, nature, told him Mount Shasta, a giant mountain in California, wasn't protected. And Roosevelt, right after he leaves camping, signs an executive order claiming all of Mount Shasta to be preserved forever after one night camping with John Muir. Um, at the White House, his favorite guest, he would place ornithologists, mammalologists, botanists at his table at huge dinners with high-named people because he was most interested in small talking with those outdoor types or science people that knew what was going on. And he'd collect animals. I mean, as president, he, like Uncle Rob, he had any time in the White House, about 37 to 40 pets. And these were like a little dog, Skip. He found a little dog who could climb trees as president because he went on a cougar hunt and he found this stray dog. Skip would stay on his lap all day long. He had a parrot next to him. He had, at one point, Haile Selassie, the emperor of Ethiopia, gave him a hyena, which he brought to the White House. They then had to move it to the zoo. But um, he had in the White House, while living with his family, the closest pet to the children was a badger that TR picked up in Kansas that a girl gave him in a box at a train station. And he nursed it with milk and potatoes and they are a colonial 
mammal. So within a family structure, they are docile. You, so there are these wonderful photos of all the Roosevelt kids holding Badger Joshua by the scruff of the neck, sleeping with it. And yet, if you came into the Roosevelt household, it would attack. And that Badger attacked a congressman, got hurt and bit. And it became a brouhaha. And they had to bring Josiah to Sagamore Hill. But he's buried right there, you know, in proper burial. He was a beloved pet of the family. Lizard snakes, turtles. He, he, he had a menagerie. He brought brought a pony into the White House and would let the pony go on the elevator and uh, and go on the different floors. Now, this is eccentric. He would have his pockets filled with peanuts. And every morning when he'd walk out of the White House, he'd feed the squirrels. And as president, he wrote a book about the birds of Washington, D.C., documenting the bird plights. So you, this is a very unusual figure. You'll never see one like this. And he also, his great love was the Navy. Big Navy, big farce. That's T.R. So um, today, as we look back on him and as you describe it, it sounds like he's done some wonderful things to preserve a part of our environment and the bird sanctuaries, the wilderness, the forests. But was there opposition to his doing this at the time? Or did everybody say, this is a good idea. I wish we had thought of that first. Well, he really is the best politician I've ever encountered. You know, people talk about, you know, FDR being good. TR was a great media manipulator. Uh, he read a lot. He lived to 60 and he wrote like 35 books and 150,000 letters. Um, he'd read, read, read. Um, but he got a lot of blowback for this. Nobody had even heard of it. Where did the blowback come? I'll give you one example. He wanted to save the Grand Canyon. And he brought the Rough Riders, really tough, honored soldiers from the Spanish-American War, to join him at the rim of the Grand Canyon. And the Senate was moving to mine the Grand Canyon for zinc, obestus, and copper. In modern times, it would be uranium because there's a lot of it around there. And uh, he stood at the lip of the canyon, surrounded by his Rough Riders, and said, do not touch this. God has made it. You will only mar it leave the Grand Canyon alone. And the Senate didn't hear him. And so TR was not going to lose the Grand Canyon. So with the Congressman John Lacey of Iowa, who was a little bit like TR and outdoor guys, but Lacey's big thing was um, dinosaur bones. They were paleontology was his big thing. But Lacey had written an act that got snuck through Congress called the Antiquities Act of 1906. It's about a paragraph long, and it's very elastic, but in it, it uses the word science. And it says the federal government, in the name of science for the future generations, has a right to declare an area off zones from development. The spirit of the Lacey Act, or the Antiquities Act of 06, was really about maybe an acre, 16 acres, really for archaeological digs. Out west, somebody finds a T-Rex on property. You can't go grab the bones. We're going to coordinate it off. Belongs to the American people. Roosevelt applies that to the million acres of the Grand Canyon and says, you know, basically, how can you use that for this? He got sued immediately by everybody. Roosevelt said, it says for science, show me a better example of erosion at work than the Grand Canyon. And we need to study erosion and we need the canyon. And he goes to the courts. And he wins his court cases. And so he won. Once TR had that executive power, he went ape on it. He was, I so declare the Muir Woods, you know, or Devil's Tower in my, Wyoming. And, uh, and, and since then, Roosevelt gave presidents a mechanism 
when Barack Obama would have me to the White House, he felt flummoxed by Congress Obama, but he found out about how TR did the Antiquities Act. So Barack Obama became a TR guy. Obama started applying it more to historic places, but Obama saved the San Juan Islands of Washington as a national monument um, where Cesar Chavez is, is Imperial Valley area. Um, Buffalo Soldiers um, in Ohio National Monument, Harriet Tubman sites, um, Stonewall, the first LGBTQ site. Obama was just signing executive orders and nobody could stop him. That's the gift Theodore Roosevelt gave other presidents. So a final question for you, uh, Doug. Um, you obviously written about many presidents, and I know so like asking you which of your children do you like the most. But if you could have dinner with any one president, given your love of the outdoors, would it be Teddy Roosevelt? It's 100 percent Theodore Roosevelt. I admire him tremendously, um, not just because of that, uh, his conservation. Uh, I like his personality. He's the most interesting president. He spoke off the cuff. He was funny. He, he could write. He would read your book. He was very good at that, of reading. So if you were a journalist in his day and you wrote a book, He'd read it, and then he'd go talk to the journalist about it. Um, he was also a great father, a great husband. Um, his love of America was almost, you know, it transcended him. It just came out of every pore. And I think today we need TR-like leadership. He had a, a genius of taking good ideas from what today we'd call the right and good ideas from the left. He, he wasn't an ideologue. He'd weigh things out and say, here's the policy. I hear both sides. Only on conservation did he get far out because that was his, you know. In fact, when he leaves, David, the presidency, one of the first things that Warren Harding tries to do is undo TR stuff, particularly in Alaska, because Roosevelt would have had Alaska as all one big protected reserve. Right. And Harding starts on doing a lot of that. But yes, he's such a colorful figure. And uh, he'd, be, he'd be even over Lincoln, I'd go Theodore Roosevelt. So we've been in conversation with Doug Brinkley, the presidential historian, about his book, The Wilderness Warrior, Theodore Roosevelt and the Crusade for America. Doug, thank you very much for an interesting conversation. Thank you, David. Enjoyed it tremendously. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.